Bible this morning, we would turn your attention to Ephesians chapter 1, uh, verses 15 through 22. In the Pew Bible, this is found on page 1,343. And our intention this morning is certainly to begin a series of sermons through the book of Esther. Uh, But this morning's sermon, uh, you might say, will be an introductory sermon, uh, so to speak, setting the table uh, before we anticipate uh, the feast that we find in the words of the book of Esther. And I've chosen a passage of Scripture from Ephesians 1, verse 15 through 22, especially because of its emphasis upon the preeminence of Jesus Christ and His sovereignty, uh, that He has the name that is named above every name, not only in this age, but also in that age which is to come. And so we read this morning from Ephesians 1, beginning at verse 15 through verse 22. Therefore I also, writes the Apostle Paul, after I heard of your faith in the Lord Jesus and your love for all the saints, do not cease to give thanks for you, making mention of you in my prayers, that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, may give to you the spirit of wisdom and revelation in the knowledge of him, the eyes of your understanding being enlightened, that you may know what is the hope of his calling, what are the riches of the glory of his inheritance in the saints, and what is the exceeding greatness of his power toward us who believe, according to the working of his mighty power, which he worked in Christ when he raised him from the dead and seated him at his right hand in the heavenly places, far above all principality and power and might and dominion and every name that is named, not only in this age, but also in that which is to come. And he put all things under his feet and gave him to be head over all things to the church. And thus far this morning, our reading from the Word of God. A congregation of the Lord Jesus Christ, events within human history whether those events be considered on the international scale, the events that go on in the world, or if they are considered at a national scale, the events that go on in our context within the United States of America, events in history, even on a personal scale, the, the days of our lives, the experiences that we have in our youth and in our middle ages and in our elderly years, the events even in the history of a life of a congregation can at times seem confusing. Have you ever had that experience that you look at what's happening in life, whether it's your own personal life, the life of a congregation, the life of our nation, the life of the whole world, and you find yourself a bit confused? You can't quite seem to connect the dots. You can't quite seem to understand how or why things are happening the way they are happening. In connection with the confusion that we at times sense, there can also be discouragement. Perhaps we hear reports or we see evidence of the increase in ungodliness the lawlessness that seems to abound. And maybe we have anecdotal evidence of the apostasy that sweeps through the churches. Maybe we hear or even 
sadly experience something of the atrocities that a sinful human race commits. Maybe we hear wars and rumors of wars, and all of this can cause us to be a bit discouraged. Uh, What the author of the Hebrews described as the hands that hang down and the knees that grow weak and feeble. We become downcast. We become downtrodden. And in the midst of that, we can sometimes begin to ask, where is God? Where is God and, and what is God doing? That's a question that brings us into the book of Esther. Throughout the entire book of Esther, the name of God is not mentioned. The worship of God is not described. It would seem, and I want to stress that word, seem, it would seem that God is missing. You have the nations and all of their pomp and arrogance doing what the nations do. And you have the covenant people of God and all of their seemingly weakness appear to be on the very verge of extinction. And yet make no mistake about it. In the book of Esther, God is there. In your life, God is there. In the life of the world, God is there. And not only is God there, He is still upon His throne still exercising a comprehensive sovereignty. And this is important for us to understand and to emphasize in our secular culture. And what do we mean when we identify a secular culture? We're we're living in a world in, in which individuals think God is not really involved. Secularism is a certain worldview, a certain perspective of life that that discredits the involvement of any majestic deity. Oh, sure, sure, many individuals still acknowledge some higher being, some greater object. Sure, many people in our land still acknowledge that we are one nation under God. But make no mistake about it, we live in a secular culture in which many doubt or even deny the absolute sovereignty of the one true God of heaven and of earth. And that's partly why we have chosen to begin a series through the book of Esther. Because the story, and I'm borrowing a quote here, the story of Esther is a powerful statement about the reality of God. Just pause there. The book of Esther is a powerful statement about the reality of God in which he appears to be absent. So if you think that God appears to be absent in your own personal life right now, the book of Esther I humbly say, is for you. And if you look upon the events that are happening in the churches, and if you are prone to think that it appears that God is absent, the book of Esther is for you. 
And if you look at our nation and our world, if you turn on the news or read the news, and if you are in any way tempted to think that God appears to be absent, the book of Esther is for you. And I want this morning uh, to introduce ourselves to the book of Esther by considering its authorship, its setting, and its themes. So an introduction this morning to the book of Esther. First of all, its authorship, and then secondly, its setting, and then thirdly, its themes. So the authorship of the book of Esther. The book of Esther is of anonymous authorship. What do we mean by that? We're not exactly sure who penned the book of Esther. We know in part that the unidentified author used at least three sources. Esther 9 verse 20, and you can look this up later if you're so inclined, but Esther 9 verse 20 records the writings of Mordecai. And of course, those of you who have some knowledge of the book of Esther, you will well remember that Mordecai is one of the primary persons involved in the book of Esther. Well, Mordecai, whether it was some type of diary or, or journaling exercises, Mordecai wrote down some of the things that he experienced, that he went through. And whoever finally composed the book of Esther used that source of Mordecai's writings in addition to that, there were the chronicles of the kings of Media and Persia. Esther 2, verse 23, references this. And just like in our own day, a very careful log is taken of all of our leaders' activities, uh, the various appointments, the various meetings, the various travels of our dignitaries, so also in the kingdom of the Medes and the Persians, there was a very careful chronicling or writing down of the actions of the leaders and of the kings and the author of the book of Esther consulted uh, the books of the Chronicles uh, of the kings of the Medes and Persians. A third source uh, would have been what we call oral tradition. And the Jews especially, although many in ancient cultures, uh, were very skilled at handing down, not myths, not legends, not fables, but a very precise, accurate record of events that took place. So one generation would retell to the next generation the things that had taken place. And so all of these sources were used by this unidentified author to compose the book of Esther. But there's something even more important, and that is what we would call its primary authorship. Ultimately, the book of Esther is in an existence because the Holy Spirit inspired the writer of the book of Esther. We remind ourselves of what is written so clearly and powerfully by Paul in 2 Timothy 3, verse 16 and 17. All Scripture is given by inspiration. Theologians speak of a verbal plenary inspiration, verbal meaning that every single word in the original manuscripts, the big words and the little words, the subjects, the nouns, the predicates, the verbs, every single word in the original Scriptures are given by inspiration. And also then plenary, all of it. Genesis, Exodus, Matthew, Mark, Romans, Galatians, Psalms, Proverbs, and also the book of Esther. Breathed out in a supernatural way by the third person of the Trinity, the Holy Spirit, into the mind of the human author 
so that the human author, yes, consulted the books of Mordecai, consulted the books of the Chronicles of the Kings, consulted the oral tradition, but the Holy Spirit guided and moved and directed all of that consultation. And when the author picked up the pen, so to speak, and began to write, the Holy Spirit governed and directed every single word that was written. And this is one of the most foundational beliefs, the most convictional beliefs that we must have when we open up the Word of God. We are not dealing here with simply some retelling of an ancient story. We are dealing here with the revelation of our God. A revelation that is not only inspired, but because it is inspired, it is infallible. It is inerrant. There's no errors in it. And it cannot be wrong. And it is not wrong in its revelation for our doctrine and for our life. And so there must be this sense of holy trembling, but also this optimistic confidence when we open up our Bibles. And when we begin to read, and also when we begin to read Esther 1, verse 1. His primary authorship is that of the Holy Spirit. Do you believe that? I trust you do. I trust we do. I make this point of application. Let us as a congregation be in continued fervent prayer that we as a flock us and our children and our grandchildren would have this conviction that what we are dealing here is the very Word of God. And it has purpose. It is a purposeful authorship. A purposeful authorship in relation to the book of Esther because it records historical events. The Old Testament is broken up into three sections. One of those sections are the writings, the historical writings that record actual events that took place. And again, we reiterate this is not a myth. This is not a fable. This is not a nursery rhyme. This is not just a nice story. The events that are recorded in the book of Esther are events that actually took place and the unfolding of human history, and they are events that are historical in the work of divine redemption. And this is something also we must appreciate when it comes to historical events. God is doing something. God has a purpose. God has a goal. God has an end. And every single event that takes place including as we'll see in the book of Esther, including nights in which kings can't sleep, and evil plots in which wicked men build massively tall gallows to hang those that they cannot stand. And even the, the coming and goings of individuals, and even the royal banquets, and the big parties, and the feast, and everything else that goes on in this world, it all has a purpose. And that purpose ultimately is the realization of God's redemptive work. And I firmly believe that if we can capture this, it will give us a different perspective on life. Because what you have in our age is so many individuals who have no idea what it all means. They look at life and they don't know what it means. The big philosophical questions, where did I come from? Why am I here? Where am I going? 
the vast majority of our fellow human beings have no solid answer to those questions. But the Word of God, including the book of Esther, gives us the answer. Where are we going? To the culmination of the redemptive work of Christ. And so the authorship of the book of Esther, what then of its setting in our second point? I want to say two things briefly about its setting. First of all, in regards to geography, and then secondly, in regards to politics. It's setting, the book of Esther is written in a unique geographical setting within the Persian Empire. And if you're taking notes, you could write that down. These events take place in the Persian Empire. They take place in the 6th and 5th century. So around approximately, and we stress approximately, we're not exactly sure when these events took place, but around 475 B.C., that is 475 years before the coming of the Lord Jesus Christ. But the, the main point I want to emphasize is that when we say that these events took place in the land of Persia, they took place far from home, from the perspective of the Israelite. The covenant people of God, the Israelites, you know, they were given the land of promise. They dwelt in the land of promise. They're in the land of Canaan. But because of their sin, especially of idolatry, because of the worshiping of other gods, the gods around them, the gods of the nations, God was displeased with them and exiled them uh, a large number of them in the 6th century under the Babylonian king Nebuchadnezzar. And this exile, this casting out or this moving out of the promised land included uh, the ancestors of Mordecai in around 597 B.C. And now later Ezra and, and Nehemiah along with some other prophets now, they would return to the promised land as, after it had been devastated, and they would begin to rebuild the temple, and they would begin to rebuild the walls. They would begin to re-inhabit the land. There were a good number of Jews who were scattered underneath what we call the diaspora, the, the scattering, who remained outside of the land of promise, far, far, far from home. And just have this in the back of your mind when you think and when you read of these events in the book of Esther. These individuals are far from the promised land. And it would seem, and I use, I use that word not necessarily just out of repetition, but for emphasis, it would seem to these individuals that the plan of God has been frustrated. What of that land? What of that promise? What of it now that I'm far, far, far from home? In the case of Esther, apparently orphaned, not only far from home, but without, without her father, without her mother. Yes, thankfully, with the care of Mordecai, but in another sense, far from home and alone. Not only is there this geographical setting, but also the political setting. There is this king, Ahasuerus, and he sits on the throne of the world empire of the Medes and the Persians. 
Now, most identify him as Xerxes, a few as Darius. I'm not convinced that it makes a difference whether you want to identify him as Xerxes or Darius. He's given this title, Ahasuerus, the, the king, the emperor. Now, if you go back a little bit, you remember the name Nebuchadnezzar. You remember the empire of Babylon and all of its glory, all of its splendor, all of its fame, world-renowned. And they had swiftly conquered the Assyrians. They had risen to preeminence. But this is what always happens. The Babylonians were toppled. The Babylonians' day is done. They are nothing more than a note in the history book. Now, now it is the Medes and the Persians who rule the world. And I just simply want to make this note. Where are the Medes and Persians today? Well, they're a chapter in the history book just after the Babylonians. Their empire is no more. Their kingdom is no more. Their political power is no more. The Christian and the Christian church has to understand throughout the entirety of the human history, kingdoms rise and kingdoms fall. And as kingdoms rise, they boast arrogantly of their supreme power, but in a blink of an eye and a snap of a finger, they are no longer to be found. One kingdom alone, and we'll consider this again, Lord willing, tonight, one kingdom alone eternally endures. And that kingdom is the kingdom of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. And to that kingdom we profess to belong. Yes, our earthly citizenship is bound up in a certain nation. But our spiritual citizenship transcends that. Kingdoms rise and kingdoms fall, but the mature Christian should not quickly be shaken by such events. So we hear reports about this nation or that empire or this regime as they maneuver and as they strategize for exercising dominance. And certainly we are involved and we maintain a, a measure of knowledge with the goings-on of human history, but we ought not do so with a spirit of discouragement or despair. You can think of Daniel. You can think of Mordecai. You can think of Esther. You can think of the Apostle Paul. You can think of the early Christian church. Their faith was not ultimately based upon an earthly kingdom because they understood earthly kingdoms come and earthly kingdoms go, and they do so very quickly, very transiently. Their faith was bound up in the promises of God, in the kingdom of God. And we'll see this plot unfold throughout the book of Esther. To borrow another quote, the essential conflict between the two kingdoms, the empire of Ahasuerus and the kingdom of God, this plays itself out in the lives of the flawed and unexpected individuals, including Mordecai, including Esther. But God delivers his people. That's, that's the setting. God delivers his people from the threat of extinction. Colossians 1, verse 16. And if you are so inclined, if you still have your Bible open, just a few pages over from the text that we read from Ephesians. Colossians 1, verse 16. Speaking here, 
about our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. For by him all things were created that are in heaven and that are on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or principalities or powers. All things were created through him and for him. It's interesting that we are beginning a series of sermons to the book of Esther as we are also beginning another presidential election season. Just remember, just remember, all things were created by Christ and all things were created for Christ. Don't easily be shaken by the events that transpire among earthly nations, among earthly kings, among earthly leaders. People of God, all of these individuals are merely pawns in the hand of Christ who moves them wheresoever He will. And that ties into our themes, and again, this is just an introduction, but in our third point, I want to identify two primary themes that are woven throughout the book of Esther, and the first is that of the providence of God. And what is the providence of God? Here, I believe the Heidelberg Catechism is very helpful in question and answer 27. But notice how personal the Catechism is when it asks this question, what do you understand by the providence of God? What do you understand by the providence of God? What does the providence of God mean to you? And the answer, providence is the almighty and ever-present power of God. Is that your understanding? The almighty power of God that is ever-present every single day of human history and every single event of human history? Do you believe that the power of God was present as Haman hammered out his gallows? Do you believe that the power of God is present and almighty as events in our nation and in our world transpire? Do you believe that the power of God is almighty and ever-present when you walk into the workforce, when you walk into school, when you submit an application, when you make your plans, when you hope for the future, when you establish your dreams? What do you understand by the providence of God that the almighty and ever-present power of God by which God upholds as with his hand heaven and earth and all creatures and so rules them that leaf and blade, rain and drought, fruitful and lean years, food and drink, health and sickness, prosperity and poverty, all things, in fact, everything comes to us not by chance, but by his fatherly hand. And in the book of Esther, we will read of royal banquets, of excessive feast. There'll be all sorts of relational drama, ironic twists, murderous plots, 
You could say Esther is a soap opera put down in writing. But it's all underneath God's sovereign control. And he's using all of those events to accomplish his purposes and his ends. And he continues to use all events to do just the same. And that's the second theme. What is God's great purpose? His covenant. The continuation, the preservation, and the eventual realization of his covenant. The question as you move through the book of Esther is what will happen? Now you might say we have a bit of a disadvantage, although it's really not a disadvantage. It's always an advantage to know the scriptures well, but I use that word somewhat lightly. The, the disadvantage is we know what happens. We, we know the end. It's like we've read the last chapter of the book before we start reading the first chapter, but if you allow yourself to pretend ignorance, and if you allow yourself to eclipse the ending and read it fresh, as you move through the book of Esther, the big question is, what will happen to the covenant people of God? Will they be extinguished? Will they be annihilated? Will they be eliminated by those who hate? And, and that's also the, the question in our context. What will happen to the church? What will happen to the church in a post-Christian world? What will happen to the church in the midst of a de-churching culture here uh, in the Western Hemisphere? What, what will happen? What will happen, maybe even we are prone to ask, what will happen to the covenant? Will it be extinguished? Will the church be no more? And the answer is God will keep His promises. I can guarantee you on the basis of Scripture that there is one organization, if you want to call it that, that will continue throughout all of time and into eternity, and there is only one. And that organization is not one of the Fortune 500 companies. That organization is the church. The church of the Lord Jesus Christ. When the dust of human history settles, empires will have come, empires will have gone. Emperors will have come, emperors will have gone. The movers and shakers of society will have come and they will have gone. There's a show that sometimes uh, we watch a bit in our home, The Men Who Built America. And you can read about the Rockefellers, Standard Oil, Henry Ford, Carnegie, the steel industry, the railroad industry. Where are these men now? Their bodies are forgotten in a grave. Their souls have returned to the one who made them. And what of their companies? So you build an empire here on earth. 
Someday the auctioneering firm will come in and liquidate that empire. Everything will be lined up. Everything you worked so long and so hard and so tired, it'll all be sold. One thing alone remains. That is the covenant promise where God says, I will be your God and you will be my people. And that's the theme that we'll see all throughout the book of Esther. Psalm 137, verse 1 and 4, speaks about the exile, and it says, By the rivers of Babylon, there we sat down. Yes, we wept when we remembered Zion. And then this question, how shall we sing the Lord's song in a foreign land? How shall we sing? By faith. By faith, not in ourselves, not in our own strength, not in our own ability, not certainly in our own numbers, but by faith in our sovereign, covenantal God. Amen. Our Heavenly Father, we praise you and we thank you for you are God, and we ask that you would impress us with the reality of your majesty, your sovereignty, your power. And as you impress us with these truths through the words of Holy Scripture, we pray that they may comfort our souls and give us an optimistic confidence, certainly not in ourselves. May we never boast in ourselves, but may we have an optimistic confidence in who you are and what you have done and also in what you will continue to do. We pray this, that your name might be honored and glorified and that our souls might be refreshed and that we might be mature in the faith. We ask this for Jesus' sake. Amen. At this time, I would ask that you would take out your forms and prayers booklet uh, and turn to page 80. Uh, a few weeks ago, uh, we had the ordination and installation of elders and, and deacons. Uh, at that time, elder-elect uh, Mr. Bruce Skibout uh, was ill, so we'll have the ordination uh, of Mr. Skibout this morning. Since we read the, the form in its entirety a few weeks ago, this morning uh, we'll just simply uh, have the vows asked uh, of our brother, and then I'll give the appropriate charge to him in connection with his office. Uh, so these are found on page 81 underneath the section there, vows. And uh, Brother Skiba, at this time I would ask you to stand here in the presence of our Lord and also, of course, of the congregation of his people. Uh, Brother Skibout, in order that the church may hear that you are willing to take your respective office upon you, uh, please answer the following questions. Do you, as an elder, feel in your hearts that you are lawfully called by God's church and therefore by God himself to your respective holy office? Second, do you believe the Old and New Testaments to be the only word of God and the doctrinal standards of this church to be in harmony with them? And third, having heard the description of the purpose and requirements of these offices, do you promise to fulfill them faithfully by the grace of God as an elder in the government of the church, together with the ministers of the word? And then fourth, do you promise to walk in all godliness and submit to the government of the church in all things pertaining to your office? Bruce Kibout, what is your answer? And may the Almighty God and Father Fill you with his grace, uh, that you, brother, may faithfully and fruitfully discharge your respective office. Amen. And then I want to give you a charge, brother. And so I charge you as an elder, 
along, of course, with the other elders of this congregation, in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, to be diligent in the government of the church, which is committed to you jointly with the minister of the word. Be a faithful watchman over the house of God, taking heed that the purity of doctrine and godliness of life may be maintained. And then, of course, we'll skip the section that deals with the charge of deacons, but I also want to charge you, beloved Christians, now as you receive this brother as a servant of God, sustain him along with the other elders and office bearers with your daily prayers. Render to the elders all honor, encouragement, and obedience in the Lord. Provide the deacons generously with the necessary gifts for the needy, remembering that inasmuch as you do it to the least of these his children, you do it to him. May God give us to see in the ministry of the elders the supremacy of Christ, and in the ministry of the deacons the care and love of the Savior. Being thus engaged in your respective callings, each one of you shall receive of the Lord the reward of righteousness. And then also since we read the form of subscription is an entirety uh, two weeks ago at this time, uh, brother, would you come forward uh, and sign there on the lectern uh, the form of subscription, thereby indicating uh, that you do agree uh, with our forms of doctrine. 